This episode of The Ready Room is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. I'm Jeff Combs. I'm everywhere on Star Trek, and you keep tuning in to Trek FM. Welcome to The Ready Room, show number 156, Max Headroom's Historic Adventure. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me this week is Sebastian Pruth. We'll be talking about some Star Trek news, including the premiere of the Red Shirt Diaries, how you can help get the USS Titan into the official Starship's collection, and we debate which captain was best under pressure. Then in the feature, we're joined by Andy Vanderkolk and Daniel Handlin to discuss the TNG episode, A Matter of Time. So let's step into the ready room. Hello, Sebastian. It's great to have you back on the ready room. How's everything going? Everything is going great, Chris. Thanks. Uh, It's cool to be here as a co-host, which is totally new. It is new. You've been on before and you've been on other shows like Warp 5, but first time in the co-hosting chair here on The Ready Room. Now, you've you've had a busy weekend, right? You've been zipping around in starships. Is that what I understand? (laughs) Yeah, I had a really busy uh, weekend this last few days. Um, I I went up to Northern California and did an autocross school with my father in his uh, Porsche. So we went out and did some major precision driving with a couple of instructors and learned a lot and I got really sunburned and really sore. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to say that you guys went out to the desert and you did a doom buggy thing so you could reenact your favorite moments from Nemesis. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, I actually would love to drive one of those cars, but it, you know, we the Porsche is more than I, you know, could ever hope for out of an engine and we we had an absolute blast and you know, the sun crept up on us cuz we started the day in the fog and by about midday suddenly the sun was right above us and we were all just boiling like lobsters. Wow. Well, speaking of lobsters, which are red, And speaking of traveling at high speeds, which can be dangerous, the first thing we're going to talk about today is the Red Shirt Diaries launching. It launched here as we record this. It just launched September 1st. Were you ever concerned over the weekend that you might become a Red Shirt and it would be the end of the days for you? (laughs) Actually, I was because, you know, like Red Shirts who are constantly in a position of either being in a lot of danger or being the butt of the joke or just being dead. 
I spun out in that car at least four times and flew off oh, of wow. the track. And Yikes. I tell you, <laughs> you're there to take it to the edge. And my instructor was like, I want you to t- go around this circle on the skid pad. I want you to go faster and faster, hugging the cones until you lose control. And then you lost control. At, at 60 miles an hour, I wasn't able to hold the car in the circle anymore. At the beginning of my training, at the end, I was a lot better. All right. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, fortunately, there's never been a Star Trek episode where red shirts uh, died doing uh, donuts in a Porsche. And luckily, <laughs> Ensign Williams has never done that herself either, I guess. Now, Ensign Williams is the lead character of the Red Shirt Diaries here, played by actress Ashley Robinson. And I just had Ashley and Jason Inman, who uh, directed and, and helped write this series, on continuing mission this past week. And we talked for close to an hour about this. And I know you've watched the first episode. Mm-hmm. What did you think about this? I think it's really funny. I really, really like this series. And when I watched the first episode before we recorded today, I was going through their website trying to see if there was more. Because I watched mm. the trailer and I remember commenting on Facebook going, God, I hope this show is better than the trailer. And then the first episode, I was like, oh, this is funny. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> and, you know, because it's the man trap and the salt monster and Uhura kind of appears and she's been taken over by the salt monster. Spoiler, spoiler. But, you know, it's a two minute episode. So that I, I mean, yeah. saying anything is a spoiler, but right. you should definitely go and watch it. It's two minutes of fun. She's really she's really interacts well with the camera. It's, it's kind of like Lonely Girl 15 meets Star Trek, the original series. Yeah, Ashley told me she's been acting since she was 12. So she's been doing this for a long time. And Jason is a very experienced filmmaker also. And they just wanted to put a comedic twist on the original series and the idea of red shirts. And you see all these red shirts dying, but you know there have to be all these other people on the Enterprise who managed not to go to the planet and not die. And so what's life like for them on the ship? And that's what the Red Shirt Diaries is all about. Yeah, if, if, if the original series was made today, they probably would have like blog entries and hashtags. Right. So it's they'd like, be tweeting, right? <laughs> <then> you're like, <laughs> you follow <laughs> at Ensign Williams on Twitter and she yeah. tweets like, Phew, good thing I didn't go on that mission. Three of my crewmates just died. Heading to the funeral, catch you later. <laughs> right. Oops, they just sent them out in torpedoes. Apparently they don't even have names. Right. Scotty <laughs> loves playing the bagpipes. Who knew? And he doesn't even move his fingers. How does he do it? <laughs> so you mentioned that you were looking to see if there are more episodes. So the way this is going to work is the first episode is out now, premiered September 1st. And then every Monday, there will be a new episode and there are 10 all together. And then I also just found out that on Tuesdays, they're going to follow up the episode with a webcomic. Well, that sounds fun. I, I mean, if, if it's responded to well, maybe there'll be a next generation kind of lower decks thing. That would be fun. You yeah, know? yeah. Well, everyone, listen to Continuing Mission 21, which is called By the Hand of Gertrude, because we talked a lot about Gertrude's role in this uh, take on the man trap here. 
Yes. And how they, they found the glove that was the right color to be Gertrude. Yeah. That, <laughs> the flower. That, in, that in sock, uh, quarters. sock puppet thing, which uh, she's <laughs> feeding and talking to. It, it's really funny because it's, it's very cheap, but it's funny and it keeps mm-hmm. you entertained for that two minutes and you want more. There's nothing yeah. more that a producer wants than what the end of whatever he has done or he, she has done for the audience to go, where's the next one? Where's the next one? Exactly. So so go listen. Continuing Mission 21, you'll hear from Ashley and Jason directly about this. It was a really fun conversation, and we found out a lot. And then go check it out. The redshirtdiaries.com is the URL. And of course, it's all on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube, you can search as well. But I recommend just going to theredshirtdiaries.com. And as they pointed out, make sure you put the in front of it. And you can watch the videos there and then you'll be able to get access to the webcomic and and everything else that they're doing over there. But it's a really cute idea and they do have some potential plans for the future. So hopefully this will go really well for them and definitely recommend it. So Sebastian, next thing, we're going to talk about a Star Trek.com poll because that's something we've been doing on each Ready Room recently because I like to hear from my co-hosts each week what they think about these topics And this week's poll asked about which captain was best under pressure. They had 28,000 votes, and I really don't know that I agree with these results. Sebastian, tell us what the results were. Well, it looks like um, the best captain under pressure, according to 48% of the voting public, was Jean-Luc Picard. Followed by 22% think Janeway is the best under pressure, 16% favor Captain Kirk, 9% Benjamin Sisko, and a meager 4% like Jonathan Archer. And I tell you, Chris, I don't agree either. No. I Archer with 4%, I have to think that the majority of people voting didn't actually watch Enterprise and certainly did not watch the third season of Enterprise because Archer was under pressure, All unlike the, the other captains, really. I mean, maybe Cisco, maybe Janeway were under similar pressure, whereas that it's just kind of an ongoing. I think Cisco during the Dominion War and then Archer during the Zindi Scare are probably the two most high-pressure situations that, that mm-hmm. any of these five captains ever faced. You know... This is an interesting one because, yes, Picard is great under pressure, but quite honestly, his kind of pressure is not the same kind of pressure that Benjamin Sisko gets under or Archer, who has the weight of the world on his shoulders. And quite honestly... even Janeway, who is responsible for this crew, having to get back across. Now, I don't think Janeway particularly handles pressure very Mm -hmm. well. No, because she just relieves Chakotay and does what she wants. Yeah, I, for me, Janeway would be bottom of the list here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it would, for me, it would have to go Picard, Cisco, Archer, uh, Kirk, Janeway. But I, I, to be honest, I think Kirk maybe even be up there with Picard. I mean, th- this mm-hmm. they're all very strong people mm-hmm. in different ways, which is what makes all the shows unique because the right. captains are different kinds of people. To be honest, I think it's a silly question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's like a lot of polls because what StarTrek.com does is they ask these broad questions 
And then they give you, in this case, it makes sense that you have five choices because these are the five lead captains, but they'll often give you five or six choices where maybe there are 10 or 12 really good choices that should all be on there. And so it's kind of hard to answer the question. But I think what you said is exactly true here, that it's hard to compare the kind of pressure that they were under. Mm -hmm. So I always say, if people ask me, which captain would you most want to serve under? I always say Picard, because I feel that I would have the best chance of surviving the missions under Picard's leadership. Mm -hmm. I would, I would trust Picard implicitly to make not only a good decision, but uh, a cautious decision as well. And that we would survive the mission. Kirk, on the other hand, if I'm going to be in situations where it's going to get really dicey, but we're going to find a way out of it, I would want to be with Kirk because I always respect that Kirk finds a way to get out of the situation. Uh, Cisco, I would be pretty nervous serving under Cisco. I love Cisco as a captain. He's right up there at the top for me as captains. I didn't always feel that way, but I do now. Uh, but, you know, I mean, he he takes some risks, but I think that the kind of pressure that he was under, I really admire his ability to hold it together and get his crew and the Alpha Quadrant, in fact, through that. Uh, Archer, you know, he was charting new territory. That was pressure that no captain, no human, I, I won't say no human in history, but within this context, that was unique pressure that he was under. And then Janeway, for me personally, and it's the writers doing this, but I think she makes very questionable decisions and she doesn't always hold herself together under pressure the way that I would want my captain to. You know, uh, 48% of the voting public want to serve under Captain Picard. You know, he's Mm -hmm. the best under pressure kind of thing. And I would agree with that. I, if, if I was going to be in Starfleet, if you if we were in the 24th century, Chris, right now, I think I would want to be in Starfleet. I wouldn't want to be one of those guys in a onesie on a planet somewhere <laughs> calling for help, hoping they can uh-huh. get there in time. I'd want to be that guy, you know, working on the Enterprise. And I wouldn't want to be one of the guys in the onesie. I'd want to be important enough to have a jacket. Yeah. So, you know, that that's the you know and the only way you're going to survive that long, I think, is working with someone as smart and what was it the Admiral Haftel said about Jean-Luc Picard, you've never met someone with more drive, spirit, mm-hmm. determination and courage than Jean-Luc mm-hmm. Picard. He is the ultimate Star Trek character. And mm-hmm. there you go. I mean, everybody has to come in second and they I think they all come in Second, they don't come in second, third, fourth. They yeah, come in second. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really hard to rank. When someone asks me, who's your favorite captain? And I have to rattle off something like I just rattled off here. Like, this is why I like this captain. This is why I like this captain. Yep. You know, there's there there are no captains that I just truly uh, dislike and they each have their pros and cons. But definitely, if I had to put my life in the hands of one of them, it would be Picard. And he's English, so I I, I, li- I like him. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to see the uh, poll results, you can go over to StarTrek.com. We'll put a link in the show notes and let us know what you think. You can find us on Twitter. Our username is TrekFM. Facebook.com slash TrekFM. You know, send us a message, Trek.fm slash contact. However you want to reach us, let us know what you think about this poll and which captain you think is best under pressure. 
Before we go to the final story in news today, we need to tell you about one internal item. And you've heard us talk about this a little bit already, and this is Patreon. Now, our shows are free for you guys to download, and we love making them for you. In fact, that's why we make them, so that you can enjoy Star Trek discussion and make your day better, make your commute better. But although they're free for you guys, they're not free for us to produce. It's actually quite expensive. Just hosting and distribution alone runs us over $500 every month just for that, not to mention all the other stuff that goes into it. And so we really need listener support to keep the network going and to keep the ready room and all of our other shows coming to you. And the way that we've decided to set this up to not only get support from you guys, if you can offer it, but to make you part of the team is to go to Patreon. So we have outlined our goals, things that we're trying to do and the money that we need for those, but we've also outlined contribution levels and perks, things that we give you in return for your support. And we've set it up in a way that you can really be part of the network. Of course, you can get things like digital wallpaper for lower level donations, but as you go up, you can get things like associate producer credits. You can actually sit in on the recordings of your favorite shows. You can become part of our content development team. We have lots of great perks for you. So go check them out over at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm and see what you can do to help us out. And we really appreciate any support that you can give us. I mean, even every dollar makes a big difference for us. And we're also going to have some exclusive content over there that you can only get through our Patreon channel, and that'll be available to patrons. Actually, the exclusive content will be available from the $2 level up, but we're also going to have other things like early releases of shows at other levels. So go check it out, patreon.com slash trekfm, and we really do appreciate any support that you can give us. And we really thank you for listening every week and being such great supporters of the network. So Sebastian, the last story that we have to talk about today is a petition that has been organized by our friends at the Trek Collective to get Sean Taranjo's USS Titan produced as part of the official Starship's collection. Matthew and I talked about this on the latest Literary Treks. We both really want to see Riker's ship the USS Titan produced. And it's kind of shocking to me, actually, that it's not already part of their plan, considering that it is a canon ship. It's talked about at the end of Nemesis. It appears in Star Trek Online on all the book covers. They've made a larger model of it for the Turing exhibitions. But what this comes down to is Eagle Moss has said that if they get 5,000 people to sign the petition, they will almost certainly make it at least as a special edition. Well, I hope they do. You know, it's always good for the fans to get that extra little, that extra little thing that sets, you know, as a as a toy consumer, as a, you know, as a little boy growing up getting the Star Trek toys, there was always something missing from the accuracy of them. You know, you would buy a first Mm -hmm. contact phaser and it was Robin's egg blue. It wasn't silver. It was Robin's egg blue. And it was about 50% too big. Yeah. And I knew that as a 10-year-old boy in 1996, I'm looking at this face. This is Captain Picard's hands are not that big. You know? (laughs) He's a giant. (laughs) He must be such a big guy. (laughs) So, you know, when I see something like this, you know, where the fans are going to get something they want, 
he puts a smile on my face. I go, you know, they're going to get something. As a kid, I would have been excited about this. And, and while I haven't read the Titan books and I'm not up on all of that current fiction, I can understand what it must be like to be in those shoes and be excited about seeing a ship that you've enjoyed and, 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 and experienced just as much as the Enterprise D mm-hmm. or any other ship. Right, because when you read the novels, and again, I mentioned this is even, uh, this ship is in Star Trek Online and other places as well, but just when you read the novels, I mean, you get immersed in that world, and this is a real ship, and it's a real place. And not only that, it's the ship of Admiral Riker. It's his ship, so, you know, it should be there. And it's such a nice design that Sean did for this. For those who don't remember, CBS ran a contest a few years back to to design the Titan, and Sean Taranjo, who's a great artist, won that competition. They also ran a competition for Star Trek Online, which some fans may remember, to design the Enterprise F, which is actually considered canon because this was a CBS-sanctioned competition, and they promoted it as Design the Next Canon Enterprise. And this one was was won by a friend, and I believe at the time a colleague of Sean's, Adam Ely. And they're also saying they would make that one if they get 5,000 signatures on a petition for that. Also, the Aventine, which is a really, a really nice ship from the books, which is Esri Dax's ship. She's the captain of the Aventine. How she becomes a captain is a long story. I know it sounds weird, but it makes sense if you read through it. And what happened with the Trek Collective interviewing Ben Robinson, who is the collection's manager, he said, I am completely serious about doing ships like the Titan, the Enterprise F, the Aventine, etc. If we can get enough people committing to buying them, what I need is 5,000 plus email addresses that we can contact. If they all agree to pre-order a ship, we'll do it as a special in addition to the regular ones we have planned. If you wanted it as a regular priced issue, I'd need a lot more names. 5,000 is a big ask, believe me. I don't know. I think there are 5,000 people out there who want the Titan for sure, maybe the Enterprise F, maybe the Aventine, but definitely the Titan. I think that it should happen. Just uh, it, it kind of reminds me, I, I mean, I'm not in on this particular part of the universe, but I have been on the prop side and the toy side in the past. And uh, I am very excited about kind of the new stuff where our asylum very much are interfacing with the community saying, oh, you mm-hmm. want a Star Trek for phaser. We're going to make one. Mm-hmm. You want a TNG. And the thing is, they say things like, we can't decide what phaser from next generation is definitive and make excuses, in my opinion, like that. But, you know, when somebody says, if we can get 5,000 names, we'll make this. Come on, yeah. guys. If you want this thing, get 5,000 names. Get it out on Facebook and Twitter and all your social networks and make it happen. And, and you'll see the ship. If he promises he'll do mm-hmm. it. I mean, it's, it's in stone. It's on the Internet. It's going to happen. Yeah. He said, I don't know if he said, I promise I'll make it, but he said that we will almost surely make it. So, so he's I giving himself a little leeway to, little for leeway. him to be overruled. But. Right, because someone else there could say, Ben, look, you shouldn't have said that. We can't make this show. But I don't think that'll happen. I think if, if, if people say they want it, they'll make it. They're making obscure alien ships. They're making the USS Thunderchild. They're making 
all kinds of ships that uh, I don't even know people what the Thunderchild was. Right, that people wouldn't even think of. So the Titan, I think, will be in there. So we'll put a link in the show notes to the article on the Trek Collective, which explains in detail everything that's going on. And also to the petition. If you go to petitionbuzz.com, so the word petition and the word buzz, B-U-Z-Z.com, slash petitions, slash USS Titan, That'll take you straight to the petition. It's really easy. You put in your email address because mm-hmm. that's what they want. They need to, to know that people are going to... I'm sure they'll want to notify people. Like, we're going to make this. Right. And right now, as we are recording this on September 1st, there are 1,181 people who have already signed that petition wanting mm-hmm. to see the USS Titan. Great. Yeah, yeah. And it's not a time limit. It's not like we have to have them all by this Friday they just we just need you know this this collection is going to be produced for a number of years so let's all pull together let's support sean let's support this initiative by the trek collective and let's get this titan made well sebastian that's all we have in the news before we jump into the feature where we're going to be joined by daniel handlin and andy vanderkolk first time trek from twitter to talk about the tng episode a matter of time We need to tell everyone about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. Audible is the best source for audiobooks that you're going to find anywhere. And as a Trek of Film listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying the service. And this is a great way to support what we're doing and help us keep the shows coming to you every week. You just need to go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up and choose whatever book you want. And if at the end of the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, There's nothing to lose because you'll get to keep that book. We like to recommend a book for you every week. And the one I'd like to recommend today is Probe by Margaret Wander Bonanno. And it's narrated by James Doohan. And Probe is the follow-up to Star Trek for The Voyage Home. And I'm recommending it right now because we're actually going to cover it on literary treks sometime down the road, maybe within the next two months. So Sebastian, how do you feel about Star Trek for The Voyage Home? Well, you know, I've always loved The Voyage Home because, you know, it goes back to 1986 and you get the classic lines like a double dumbass on you, which we (laughs) all love. And, you know, when the guy says, I'll give you $100 and Kirk is like, is that a lot? Is that a lot? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, The Voyage Home has always had a great place. And, you know, for me in the Star Trek movies, not only did it kind of set them up for making more because it made so much money, it was also dedicated to, you know, the... um, the crew of the Challenger who were killed oh, that, right. that mm-hmm. year. And yeah. um, it was also directed by Leonard Nimoy, but it happened to be written by Nick Meyer. So Nick mm-hmm. Meyer was wrote all the 1986 scenes and anything with Nick Meyer is good because we know that from the Wrath of Calm. We know that from the Undiscovered Country. Mm-hmm. Anything that Nick Meyer works on is good. So a book following that would be really cool. And I actually, I, I want to pick that up. I want to know what what there is to follow on about that probe because so much damage was done that no one ever yeah, talks about. But you don't you know, know what, what, what it was about, right? Yeah. Right, and that, that thing just arrives and breaks every piece of glass on Earth. Right. And it rains so, in. <laughs> so this story is 10 years have passed since Captain Kirk and the Enterprise crew brought back humpbacked whales, not people, but whales, 
from the 20th century to communicate with the mysterious probe which threatened Earth. The probe is returning to Earth and has plotted its course, and the Enterprise must continue to delve into the mystery of its language and its cosmic purpose to save Earth once again. And this book was actually on the New York Times bestseller list for six weeks when it was out. What it reminds me of, especially reading that synopsis right there, it's like this book is Rama 2. It's like Star Trek IV was Rendezvous with Rama, and the ship comes into the solar system and leaves, and still no one knows what the hell that was about. And then the probe comes back in Rama 2, and they go to figure out once again what it's about. And that's what they're going to do here. We've got to go find out what is this well probe. Well, the, the thing is that probe in the movie kind of flies into the solar system. It, 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 that that weird cylindrical thing, which nobody mm-hmm. even knows how it's actually flying. Mm-hmm. And all the starships are just like without power and unable to deal with it. So what's going to be interesting is how does this book deal with the fact that the Enterprise couldn't even get close to this thing if it needed to? I mean, mm-hmm. do they design some way of resisting the effect that this probe had on all the mm-hmm. starships and all the infrastructure and the, the orbiting space mushroom and everything, everything shut down mm-hmm. all at once because this giant cylinder came into orbit. And, you know, that's going to be an interesting thing to overcome. Yep. Definitely. And I would say I know how they do it, but I've forgotten because I read this book when it came out. I had it in hardcover. It's been years and years. So I myself am looking forward to reading it again to prepare for literary treks here coming up uh, over the course of the coming month. So this is a great way for you to get it in audio format over at Audible, absolutely free and support the show at the same time audibletrial.com slash trekafilm is the URL and we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. I think we've all asked ourselves, at least once, if the crew of the Enterprise D has a grasp on the fundamentals. And of course, the best way to find out would be to use a timeship to travel to the year 2368 and observe them firsthand. That's what Professor Berlinghoff Rasmussen did in the fifth season episode, A Matter of Time. And today we're going to talk about this story as well as its connection to the late, great Robin Williams. To help us do this, we're joined by Daniel Handlin for the first time in quite a while. Daniel, how's it going? Good, yeah, I just came back from some uh, secret Section 31 missions, and now I'm back here on the ready room. Good, I'm glad you're back. Now, I have to ask you, because it has been quite a while, have you finally sung Five-Year Missions Arena as you pass the Vasquez Rocks, like I've been asking you to do for so long now? I did finally get around to that, and I also right. uh, I went to the Vegas convention, and I got my uh, picture and autograph from Bobby Clark, the Gorn himself, so I think I'm oh, cool. fully Gorned up. That's awesome. Fantastic. Well, we're glad you're back, and also joining us for the first time on The Ready Room, but not the first time on Trek FM, is Andy Vanderkolk, also known as First Time Trek, for those following along on Twitter. Andy, welcome to The Ready Room. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here. So we're going to talk about a matter of time 
today, guys. And before we talk about it, a quick overview of the episode for those who haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a long time. The Enterprise is on a mission to help the people of Pinthara 4 who are experiencing a bit of an ecological crisis. And along the way, they encounter a ship and someone claiming to be a professor from the 26th century comes aboard the Enterprise to observe the mission. You know, it's historical research. He talks to the crew, he collects various objects from the ship, different kinds of technology, and also has a very interesting conversation with Captain Picard about the ethics of changing history. In the end, they uncover him as a fraud, as a con artist, and they get all their goodies back. That's the basic episode. It's pretty straightforward, but it is interesting in that it combines time travel with the very common B story in TNG, helping out a planet, along with a very serious ethical dilemma, dealing not only with the prime directive, but the temporal prime directive, which we will come to know in later Star Trek. So let's kick things off here with our, our initial thoughts on this. So Daniel, when you when we talked about what, what episode we were going to do today, you definitely wanted to do A Matter of Time. What are your initial thoughts on the episode? So I've always I've always liked this episode. I think um, you know, I, I do. You know, I guess we'll talk about the performance today. I, I do think that even though he's not Robin Williams, that Matt Frewer does give a, a, a really solid and entertaining performance as a professor. And I, I think it has a the more dilemma to me is interesting, and it is sort of an interesting science fiction concept having the professor come from the future to examine uh, you in the past. And for me, it's always been an episode that doesn't quite get into that upper tier of greatness. I don't know quite what it's mm-hmm. lacking, um, but it is definitely really solid and one that I enjoy a lot. How about you, Andy? Um, honestly, I think it was one of the weaker episodes of the of later Star Trek. I didn't really have much of an opinion on it the first time I saw it. And when I was trying to think about the episode, I realized I needed to rewatch it because basically all that stood out for me was Matt's performance because he's so entertaining. But I think that they've covered a lot of this ground before. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad episode. I think it's just kind of solidly in the middle. Okay. How about you, Sebastian? I think a matter of time was kind of one of the weaker later Next Generation episodes. But yes, Matt Frewer was really impressive in his kind of command performance because uh, he came in as a guest star, as someone that had never been on Star Trek and played the part really well. And I think that kind of drove the episode as far as it could go. The issue with Penthara 4 and the fact that Picard would come to him and say, you know what happened to these billions of people. And if you could just give me a little help. And he's like, I can't do it. And it makes Picard do what he would have done, which is always a really cool thing with Star Trek with time travel stories, because they always go, well, you're going to do what you're going to do anyway. So it had a lot of little things going on in the episode, which made it, I think, quite kind of a good next generation. I think it's fifth season outing. And Mm -hmm. it was uh, you have data as well dealing with with the professor from the future and kind of relating to him as a machine would. It's a good Star Trek story. I enjoyed this episode. Interesting. So for me, 
this has always been one of my favorite Next Generation episodes. And I think it's just because it's a fine episode. Like, the B story is... I guess I would say it's lame. It's it's the typical Star Trek The Next Generation B story or mission. You know, there's a planet that needs help. But it sets up the rest of the story quite well. And Matt Frewer's performance is great. And of course, I knew him as Max Hedrum watching that show in the 80s. And seeing him on here was really interesting. And what you mentioned about Picard and and him, I was watching it today again, and I I was trying to figure out, is Picard bringing him into the ready room and asking him these questions to seriously try to get information from him as a historian from the future to help him make a decision? Or is he taking him in there and questioning him to try to expose him as the fraud that he suspects that he is? And it's hard to tell because on the surface, I would take it as he is really hoping maybe this guy has some information. But on the other hand, Picard is really good at bringing people in and and playing that part and making it believable. And so it's, I get the feeling much earlier in the episode that Picard is really on to him as a fraud. Yeah, I was thinking about that during the episode. Like, obviously, he is from the past, but at the same time, he does clearly have some knowledge of the Enterprise and that something was going to happen at Panthara 4. Mm-hmm. Like, when he has that line, like, well, Forge remained below, like, it does seem like he kind of had some idea of what was going to happen. So, Mike, I've always sort of assumed he, like, went a little bit farther ahead and, like, tried to, you know, got some information so he would seem believable. So, like, in, in my view, I, I kind of I take that scene as he, he does know what's going to happen. But you, you can ask yourself, I hadn't really thought of that, like is Picard trying to draw him out as, as a fraud in that scene? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did take it at face value, but you can look at it that way. You know, I, I also kind of thought about that as well. Is Picard trying to draw him out? And I don't think he is because uh, Worf has show, shows some irritation when they're in the um, in the meeting room about it. He's like, including questionnaires. And Picard's like, including questionnaires. I've examined his credentials. And until something else comes up, I think we should extend him every courtesy. Uh, yeah, but know, that was much uh, earlier on in the episode. Though. Yes, yeah. but nothing really... Nothing concrete happens, which makes them go, really? Is, is, you know, he doesn't, he's just kind of cagey. He's not, mm-hmm. he's, he's not obviously lying to them yet. Right. I don't think he was, he was trying to draw him out simply because that doesn't seem like something Picard would do right before a really important decision he has to make that's going to affect so many lives. Like, is that the right time mm. to try and suss out this guy's motives? Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's clearly taking this decision very seriously. It doesn't seem like he would suddenly stop that thought process and be like, oh, yeah, that weird guy that's on our, our ship right now. Mm-hmm. What's his deal? So I, I took it as he really does want to know because he's wrestling with an important decision. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I, I think I read it in the end like that. He really is. I mean, I think Picard is suspicious of the guy, but just on the chance that maybe he is from the future, why not, you know, try to get the information? It would have been irresponsible of him not to ask him there. Mm-hmm. Right? Isn't that the line Picard says? It would have been irresponsible of mm-hmm. me not to ask you 
right. to give me the information, even though I know you won't give it to me. Yeah. And when you look at what happened at the end, I think clearly they, they already were suspicious of him because it's immediately after that that they send security down to see what's in his shuttle. But I don't think they had any particular reason to suspect that he was from the past or that he didn't actually have some future knowledge. Obviously, something was, was up, but I, I've, I've taken Picard's, uh, you know, question in that scene as genuine, you know, whatever other problems may be going on, he does want to try to get some information if, if he has it. Agreed. Well, let's talk about, this is an interesting thing about this episode, that Robin Williams, this part was originally written for Robin Williams, who was a Star Trek fan. And it was at the same time that they were doing Peter Pan, well, doing Hook, and then Robin Williams is in that as the role of Peter Pan. And he decided to do Hook instead. And the the thing, I'm watching the episode and I'm I'm picturing Rasmussen as Robin Williams instead of Matt Fuhrer. And it's an interesting exercise because I've seen this episode so many times that this role, I mean, it is Matt Fuhrer, is Rasmussen, and to think of anyone else playing him is difficult. But if there is one other person I could see playing the role, it is Robin Williams. How do you guys feel about the choice of Mork or Max Headroom. Can you imagine this role being played by Robin Williams? So I never really, you know, watching watching this episode this time and, and thinking about that because obviously of his of his recent death. You know, I, whenever I've watched this episode, I've never really thought like, you know, man, if only they had had Robin Williams, it would have been a great episode because I think Matt right. Frewer does do a great job. On the other hand, you know, Robin Williams is Robin Williams, and I'm sure that having him in it would have brought it to to an even you know an even higher level. Um, so you know, like you were saying, for me. I think Matt Frewer does do a great job. I do really identify that role with him, and it's hard to kind of imagine someone, you know, doing a lot better. But at the same time, you know, who knows what would have been with Robert Williams? And he's one of those people in the, the truly top tier that uh, mm-hmm. is hard to match. So, I think that um, Robin Williams would have been a completely different character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think Matt Frewer's professor was, in my mind, like you said. You've seen his episode so many times. He is Berlinghoff Rasmussen, and he is to me as well. I, he's that sort of he's like super tall, and he's kind of peering down at everybody, and you know, it, it kind of it just really worked with him. I think Robin Williams may have had just a little much too much stage presence for some of those scenes. Mm-hmm. I mean, he mm-hmm. he had a big personality, and uh, yeah. he was this incredible actor and if you put him and i'm not talking like you know some of the next generation actors they're great actors but they're not robin williams so if you put him in a scene with frakes and dorn and gates he you're definitely going to be watching robin williams he's going to drag the the screen even when when he's not the main character in that you know in, in the shot he he had so much presence yeah that's an interesting uh point sebastian and it makes me think of um there's a first season babylon 5 episode called grail which is not really very good at all but it has david warner as a guest star and for me (laughs) he's always been so good that he kind of elevates the level to at least the level of being something watchable and he just kind of raises everyone's game around him so i think when you do have an actor of that caliber it can improve the whole episode or make otherwise unbearable episodes watchable and i think you know having robert williams there definitely would have you know with with the way it is now, you see Matt Frewer and like 
you know, like we've been saying, he is Berlinghoff Rasmussen with Robin Williams. It might have been more like, hey, that's Robin Williams. Right. Mm-hmm. In the same way, watching TJ Hooker is like watching Captain Kirk play a cop. Yeah, it's, it's hard to, to divorce that. Or I guess Robin Williams is one of those guys like a little bit like John Wayne. Like John Wayne is always John Wayne. You know who he is. And I think Robin Williams has a lot more range than John Wayne, but you never he's not one of these guys who blends into the background as a as a character yeah. actor obviously he steals the show every time mm-hmm. robin williams has a lot of range but he also has a tendency when parts are written specifically for him to to kind of fall back on his persona well he improvises so feel, a lot yeah, yeah and his improvisation is very specific it's mm-hmm. You know, it's very similar every time. It's very fast. It uses a lot of references. It goes up and down. I mean, I don't know if that would have been the best kind of acting Mm -hmm. for this particular episode. But then at the same time, you see Robin Williams, your performances where he turns that off entirely. Right. So it definitely is possible. And and you can see him kind of as the somewhat conservative, very reserved scientist, kind of hair everywhere, kind of flubber role doing mm-hmm. this. You could you could maybe see that happening, but I think the walls of the Next Generation set were too close together to hold Robin Williams. I just mm-hmm. I just feel like he would have just been this explosion in there. Yeah, I. For me, this this role requires, the way it's written, this role could require a comedic side and a serious side. And I think Matt Frewer pulls off the comedic side very well. I don't think he pulls off the serious side in that scene with Picard in the ready room to the potential of what's written on the page. And with Robin Williams, I could see him handling the the comedic, the lighthearted side of Rasmussen, you know, going around the ship, kind of pretending he knows what's going on. You said earlier, Daniel, when he says, LaForge remain below. See, I didn't take that at all as him knowing anything about what was going to happen. I took that as him being a quick thinker Mm -hmm. and just making that comment to pretend like he knew what was going on. And then Picard sees right through it. You know, because Patrick Stewart has that look on his face like, oh, really? I'm That's supposed to believe I, that. I always kind of assume that he he did know that. Like I said, like he jumped ahead a little bit. Like mm-hmm. just all the little details about like the ready room and Picard's empath. Like he obviously had some kind of knowledge. but Oh, uh, he had some knowledge, I think. But the ready room also I took is just like if you're in that ready room and you've got to pull something off and you just walk across the room and seven meters. I was right. Like how that's so easy to just make up on the spot if you're a con artist. Oh yeah, definitely. I think yeah. there's probably some some mix. But but where I'm going with this though is I, I can see Robin Williams pulling all of that off brilliantly. And then I think to something like a role like in Dead Poets Society, I can see Robin Williams and Patrick Stewart together debating the ethics of changing history and using information that you shouldn't have to make a decision. I could see that seen being much more powerful with Robin Williams, where right now it's just very one-sided Picard delivering one of his speeches. And Rasmussen just like, don't ask me, I can't help you. Whereas I think with Robin Williams, that would have been a powerful scene. But I do agree with what you guys have all said, that I think that the presence of Robin Williams would have been so strong that the whole nature of the episode would have 
changed. You said something right there, though, which was Picard was kind of talking and he was listening. I've mm-hmm. always interpreted that as that Berlinghoff Rasmussen, if that really is his name or if that's the name he stole from the guy he stole the shuttle from. Right. Yeah. Um, I always thought, well, that's because this guy just isn't at Picard's intellectual level. Picard is well, that's very yeah. smart. He's in there Absolutely. and he's saying mm-hmm. this is the way it is. And and he's proposing these big ideas mm-hmm. to this, this this little man. Mm-hmm. And this little man from the past who's pretending to be something greater than he is, is mm-hmm. not able to keep up with the intellectual capacity of Jean-Luc mm-hmm. Picard. Agreed. Yeah. One thing that I think that he did really, really well throughout the episode is play that kind of con man aspect of it. He's, his whole vibe is manipulation. Everything he does is specifically to misdirect people, to make them look at one thing while he's stealing their stuff. You know, um, and that is one thing that I think he did really well, like the mm-hmm. kind of way he turns things on people. And he all throughout the episode, he has kind of a, a, a shady vibe, but you can't really pinpoint what's wrong about him. That's a subtlety that's really impressive. Mm-hmm. I just really nailed that. Like, you know, there's something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on it. And there's like just enough reality there that you kind of let him slide until you figure out what's going on. And I think he does does nail that pretty well. But when he steals the tricorder, too. Yeah, well, that that's where, like, you're obviously when he starts stealing the tricorders and the pads, like, there's definitely something wrong with that. Right. That's for the audience. I mean, that's not something that we know that the crew knows at that point. That's for us to know, okay, yes, our suspicions have, have been correct. This guy mm-hmm. is not a good guy. Mm-hmm. But up until that point, and even past that, the crew doesn't have any firm evidence of why they don't trust him. But they just know that there's just... There's something. There's something quite quite off. You can still kind of tell there's something not quite right. Like like his scenes just like we were saying before with Crusher. It's just like it's a little bit creepy. Like is this something a little off? And I think even if you didn't have those scenes, you, you'd know that there's something here that doesn't quite add up. And a lot of that is his performance. I think they could have when they get to the end and Picard looks at Riker and they nod to Worf and they all go to the the shuttle bay and they stop him at his ship at that point you know they they have figured out that all this stuff has gone missing over the past few days maybe they could have clued us in a little bit more along the way that the crew had those suspicions because it does come a little bit out of the blue at the end unless you're watching very carefully facial reactions you can see how their suspicion is growing but then at the end, it, it always kind of catches me. Uh, I mean, I know it's going to happen, but it seems a little bit sudden. I think that kind of works for me, actually. Like, because, like, you, you kind of, you, it makes you wonder, like, is he really going to get away with this? But then you see the crew mm-hmm. is, is on top of it a little bit. For me, it kind of almost reminds me of, uh, like, the defector, like, obviously, like a different dramatic level, but in the way that the three Klingon uh, birds of prey decloak toward the end and those mm-hmm. uh, cards been operating at this other level that we, the audience, and with that, too, you can see. If you watch carefully, like he talks to Worf earlier about contacting the Klingons, but you kind of forget about that or put it aside because it's such a small line. And so Mm -hmm. that that kind of works for me the way they do it here. So while we're on the topic of Robin Williams being in here, I had another thought, though. Can you imagine? Well, first of all, when they're in 10 forward, I immediately think it's really too bad Guinan's not in this episode because Guinan 
would have been suspicious from the start and would have picked up on something. So lucky for him that Guinan wasn't there. Can you imagine an episode with Robin Williams and Whoopi Goldberg both together? I always think that there should be more Guinan, so I'm with you on that. Mm -hmm. I think she was just um, uh, on Risa or something for that episode. Maybe she was making a movie. She she was at the drink mixing convention on Risa, you know. (laughs) It, it happens uh, every year. That was the 2368 con. It was a good one, too. And the last thing on this topic, this I was thinking about today for the first time. At the end, when Data and Rasmussen are in the time ship, and Rasmussen says, I was going to invent one per year. It hit me. What if this had been Doc Brown? What if this had been a Back to the Future, Star Trek crossover, and it was Doc that was going, and he was collecting these to take them back, and he was going to invent one per year? Well, you mentioned Doc Brown is moral. He wouldn't do that. <laughs> well, you you mentioned something though. Uh, what if it was Doc Brown? Uh-huh. It's funny because later in Voyager, in the episode Futures End, Futures End, Futures yeah. End, they have the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is going to the future to steal things Mm -hmm. to invent in 1995. Right. So it's kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. So they went back and said, oh, that's a great story. Let's do that. Let's let's take that, cherry pick that really cool idea that they thought of during Next Generation and go to the future and steal stuff. So... And and they did a good job with Henry Starlin. They got a good... They got a good guy to do that too, a very strong actor. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about, actually, since we're already talking so much about the crew interacting with him, let's talk about the crew reactions to Rasmussen. We were talking on the other side of the room. The other side of the room. About Beverly and uh, sort of this romance that was going on and how she was reacting to him. And of all the people on the crew... Beverly's the one I feel takes the longest to come around to the idea that there's something fishy about this guy. One thing I noticed when watching this, and I think it's just sort of the nature of the point in the show when it aired, is that I I think I just thought all the performances were just really spot on, like really across the whole crew. Um, Beverly has that good scene with him. You know, Troy obviously doesn't doesn't trust him, and and I I do like his scenes with Data. And just it struck me how you know this is sort of in many ways like the the peak or toward the peak of TNG, um, and this, this crew had just really gelled in in their performances this time. And to me, it, it looks like they're all kind of having a lot of fun with it, and I think that comes out in in uh, you know Gates McFadden's performance, and and I do do like his uh, his interactions with Data, and he's it's like really. I noticed this time I had kind of forgotten how dismissive he is of Data. Um, mm-hmm. And he dated like, I guess, really wants to know whether he's still alive in the future and seems to continue to try to communicate with him despite that. But like, yeah, and Jordy uh, also, like, I, I liked how his, he displayed his annoyance. And I just felt like all the performances were just kind of pitch perfect in this mm-hmm. one. That was one thing that I very specifically remembered about this episode is how uh, at one point, Data is trying to talk to Rasmussen about very serious things, right? His longevity. And he acts like he's a bathroom attendant, makes him like wash his hands for him or like mm-hmm. hands him the the towel afterwards. And it really, that was the moment where I was like, I don't care if this guy is a historian. I still hate him. Well, you sees me into Data. That's also a tip off that he's not from the future, 
right? Because he doesn't know what to make of data. He doesn't know what to make of an Android. If he were from the 26th century, he would, I know data is unique. Now we don't know if data would remain unique into the 26th century, but there would be other, maybe slightly less advanced Androids than data, but it would be commonplace to be interacting with these artificial life forms. So I don't think Rasmussen would have been dismissive of data in that way if he had actually been from the future. One of the cool things I thought was also mentioned in that same few moments was he looks at data and he says, to think the Model T of androids. Mm -hmm. And data corrects him and says, I was actually the revised prototype, so I would be more like a Model A. And I was thinking just now, well, you know, that makes sense that if he was from the future, you know, thinking back 200 years, you might make a mistake between the Model T and the Model A. You know, so that didn't kind of tip me off too much at that point to going, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's Mm -hmm. he's educated enough about, quote, data to just make a tiny mistake about a revision. And I mean, Mm -hmm. that was close to being truthful. So it's kind of interesting that he, he would know to say that data was an early android, which, of course, he is. Mm-hmm. And he would know he, he could have made a terrible mistake because in the 23rd century, they made a, they might have made tons of data like androids that he never knew about. But he took that gamble, that con man risk to go, oh, you're a Model T android. Which is uh, one of the things that he does often throughout the episode as a way of manipulating people is using history against them. I mean, one of the first interactions he has with Picard is all about oh, you're like Caesar or Lincoln, you know, trying to 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 kind of feed in this to this very human idea of people want to be important. People want to be remembered by uh, history and kind of implying that Picard has become such a historical figure is a really powerful form of flattery, mm-hmm. which on a lesser person probably would have worked a lot better. But even on Picard, who is a very down-to-earth person, you can't help but be flattered by the thought that somebody so far in your future might still care about what you were doing today. You know, he also uses history on LaForge when he says, you know, Homer was blind, Milton, Bach, Monet, Wonder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lots of I historical references used I as love a the tool for manipulation. <laughs> and, and it should also be noted that all of his historical references are before the 20th right. century. Picard mm-hmm. says Khan. That Rasmussen doesn't say con. It was interesting with the the uh, Bach Monet wonder thing. Like, there's it's one of those like almost Star Trek rules. Like when you mention several historical figures, you have to have at least like one or two that are made up from the future. And I noted exactly that have a single one there that right. was not. Yeah, mm-hmm. like like they did with the con. Yeah, I was waiting for him to at least name someone, say from the 22nd century. But yeah, he did. Chang. Mm-hmm. Porthos. No, Porthos wasn't blind though. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of Enterprise, though, there was I, I solved a great Enterprise mystery when watching this episode because I was thinking this guy's from the 26th century. He mentioned uh-huh. that he recently visited a 22nd century starship, so he is future guy. I think it's obvious. Oh, Ooh. okay. Well, now we know. Can you All call right. Rick Berman? Let him know. <laughs> so, so <laughs> I want to let him know. That's probably what he had in mind. I'm sure, like season six of Enterprise, Berlinghoff Rasmussen. Well, it makes sense. Yeah. So, so Professor Berlinghoff Rasmussen is 
future guy and he is using time travel as a historical tool. Everything he says kind of fits with that. Like he's from he's from the 26th century, which I think is when future guy is supposed to be from. He says he visited 22nd oh, century. That is a good point. Yes. He uses history as a tool. So he doesn't, I mean, other, other than the obvious thing that it was all made up, at least uh-huh. as it's initially presented, there it isn't a single thing he says that's inconsistent with him being future guy. Wow. So so Daniel, you may have just added a page in my head canon. <laughs> and this and, and and this episode actually confirms uh that uh phase pistols are not phasers. Because okay. because Worf right. says that they're not phasers. Yeah. And also maybe it could even maybe we could actually really put it in our head canon that maybe future guy was the guy who he killed and replaced as Berling Hoffman's music. Because that guy maybe really was from the 26th century. Mm-hmm. As interesting. Time very, Dang, very interesting. Dude, I love it. So with the with the crew here, though, I also found it was interesting that Troy actually exhibits some skills of a trained counselor in the way that she turns questions onto Rasmussen here, which is something that we don't get to see her do enough in the next generation, considering that's her training and her role on the ship. Well, he he handles the women very differently than he handles the men. He he, it tries to charm the women in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. I mean, he straight up hits on Bever- Beverly and flirts with her. And uh, with Troy, even, he's trying to flirt with her and she's shutting him down very precisely. Um, but it's interesting that he kind of the way he relates to the, the male crew members is totally different than the way he tries to relate to the female crew members. Mm-hmm. It does a sort of a, a sexist attitude uh, you know, when, he, when he's with the, like, and you see it in 10 forward, like he's very much like one of the guys and, uh, you know, trying to hang out with Riker or Worf, but even to, I think it was the, was it to Beverly or Troy there where he sit, talks about Worf, like a delightfully Beverly, yeah. primitive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he does have a, a very different uh, approach to them and could be, could be construed as offensive. So who else have we left out? Now, Riker is suspicious of him from the start. I mean, I thought Riker was going to stand up and rip that little ring watch off of his finger. Yeah, I mean, Riker has a tendency to be suspicious towards guys that come onto his ship in any way. I mean, there is that one episode uh, where no one has gone before, Mm -hmm. where he's also the one that's very suspicious of Kaczynski right off the bat. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think that one of the things that had to happen in this episode for the story to work, speaking strictly as a writer, is that a lot of the characters kind of had to move aside and just be observers and not interact too much with the actual story so that this character of Berlinghoff Rasmussen could affect everybody and they had enough time to get that done in the 38 minutes and still have a B story and still have a moral dilemma. So they they have to make little sacrifices. And I think some of those sacrifices came where you didn't see Riker knock on Picard's door and say, you know, there's something off about this guy. Right. No, you never got that scene where we saw them when Berlinghoff wasn't around. It was, it was always, he was always kind of in the action. He found himself on the bridge. He found himself wherever, wherever we were, he was. And we never got to see Picard having a reaction to him or maybe um, 
kind of making a, a phone call or saying, hey, is there, is there a history of the Rasmussen's? And, you know, like he didn't even really look him up or anything. They just they kind of glossed over that in favor of um, showing him behaving in those little ways, you know, like stealing the tricorder and the pad and dropping the verbal cues we've been talking about. And then finally, Picard decides, yeah, this guy's a liar, but we don't get to see that process. Yeah, and Riker does raise that good question, which is, of course, never answered of why don't we see other historians from the future? And you know, one would think that if there really were such people, they would try to do a better job of uh, of hiding themselves um, than he does here. It would, it would have to be something like what, you know, when the Starfleet go and observe the uh, on a planet where they don't want to be seen and they put themselves behind a force field. You know, you'd mm-hmm. think that would be how they would observe the natives kind of thing. Yeah, there's a, one of my favorite written science fiction stories. I, f- I forget what it's called at the moment, but it's about uh, a guy who he is a historian. And he goes back in time to witness their crucifixion. And he has a camera concealed in his cloak or whatever he's wearing. And at the moment of the crucifixion, he starts hearing all these clicks. And he realizes that everyone around him is a historian with a camera. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's a really cool story. Yeah, I like that one. But I guess you would think that if there were real historians, it would be more like that or like in the Who Watches the Watchers mold where they're mm-hmm. doing something to, to you know camouflage themselves better than, than this guy mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you can see even he's a fake historian and he's changing things, right? Your your mere presence is a change. People, I mean, people keep asking him, does this mean something's going to happen? You know, I mean, if he was really there to observe a, a big event, well, then people would necessarily know that there was a big event coming and that would change the, the way they viewed it. Like the yeah. observer effect. Exactly. Yes. Your presence is always going to inevitably change. Mm-hmm. The course, and if if his if his moral uh, moral directive is not to change things, then he can't be known. I mean, that right there is a big heads up that he is not who he seems. Right, an actual historian would not come on and, and interact in the way that he did. You you would hope not. Well, let's actually talk more about that because that's the the next topic we have here is using time travel as a tool for historians. So we're talking right now about how they would have to behave if they were actually back in time. And and I assume that historian, I mean, history, you're talking about the past, but if you had this tool, it wouldn't surprise me if people also wanted to find out about the future and some people might travel to the future as well. But so traveling through time to witness other events on the timeline, I mean, how, how do we feel about this as a tool? And, and how it would be used. Well, you can see why it would be something that historians would love. It's the mm-hmm. most perfect primary source document you could ever have, right? Mm-hmm. But ethically and morally, I don't see how that is something that could be okay. One should point out that that is pretty much exactly what they say they're doing in Assignment Earth from TOS. Not that that's right. like oh, a, yes. mm-hmm. a continuity-setting episode as such, but there they pretty explicitly say, like, we have traveled back to 1968 to see how Earth got through these historical periods. And like, you know, even setting that itself aside, I think, through, I, I think you could make an argument that if you're careful, obviously this guy isn't, but if you were doing it in reality, you could disguise yourself in a way that's not dissimilar from what the enterprise crews do when they just go to less advanced planets um you know like like a who watches the watchers or thine own self in any any 
situation where they visit a pre-warp society, as long as you can disguise yourself as one of the natives, I don't see why it would be impossible. And certainly for the past, I think you could, well, assuming you don't change it, um, right. there would be less maybe moral issues and there would be like going to the future and getting knowledge of what will happen in the future. But uh, yeah. how could you know? I mean, the whole point, there's that original, that great original series episode, which is um, City on the Edge Forever, mm -hmm. where they change things by doing something small, right? Just saving saving a woman from being hit by a car, and it changes everything. I mean, how are you going to know that some small action isn't going to ripple? Well, I think any small action would ripple. I don't, I don't think it's possible for it not to ripple. It's just a matter of how much would it change history and how far down the timeline would the effects of it surface? And if you send someone back, I don't know how... You could have a directive, like you go back and you you cannot change anything whatsoever, but you're dealing with people. I don't know how that could actually ever uh, be enforced or how those people could even avoid accidentally changing something. But just Just imagine, though, if, for example, just let's just play, play with lots of variables. Say you've got a disease that you don't know you have and no one else knows you have. And it's transmitted by breathing to certain people. And you travel through time to 1812 or 1755 and you end up infecting people just by your presence and wiping mm -hmm. out a village, a city, a castle with kings and queens, whatever it is, you could effectively change everything ever by mm -hmm. just being there. Yep. Well, but also, on the other hand, depending on your philosophical view of time travel and like fairly serious philosopher types have written about this is like you could also create scenarios in which your presence in the past may be part of those events that allowed them to happen, a which becomes paradoxical. paradoxical. Right. Um, like mm -hmm. one of the things I, I know it's not like a great classic, but if you look at time's arrow, I think yeah. one of the things that's really brilliant there is how they set it up. So that by the end of the episode, it is exactly as it was before sort of implying that it couldn't have happened that way had they not been there. Um, so there is definitely a, a school of thought where there is only one timeline and your presence in the past may have been always been part of the timeline and you're required to be there. That re yeah, that remains one of my single favorite moments in Star Trek ever. Yeah. When I see and when the camera pans and shows Data's head is there for history to either repeat itself or just for it to kind of seal the, the full circle. I, I, I thought that was just beautiful writing. And and the way he leaves his pocket watch there because he knows that they found that too, mm -hmm. uh, Samuel Clemens. But uh, yeah, so I think you know I I could see it as as that that you know maybe you go back in time, maybe you even have some huge impact, but maybe that was part of what initially led to the historical events that and then that's one way that people have suggested avoiding like you know the classic grandfather paradox, like you go back in time and kill your grandfather. How are you born? Um, so the argument would be like maybe time travel works in such a way that you can only do things that led to the timeline in which you traveled back. You mean you have to travel back almost like do you remember in Star Trek First Contact when they go in the temporal vortex? There's a couple of lines. Data says the temporal vortex must have protected us from the changes in the timeline mm -hmm. when they see yeah. that the Earth has been borgified. So they go further back to prevent it from happening. 
and Riker and LaForge actually ride on the first warp ship and, and, and do that. Now, the thing is, if you go back and look in history, was were they on that ship? Or is it two unknown astronauts? I mean, are you kidding? We know everybody that went to the moon. You know, <laughs> there's no way to keep that a secret. And then if you go back and look at the the, the character that Cisco plays in that episode. That's what I was about to say, yeah. He, yeah. He, mm-hmm. They go back and look at the photograph and it's a picture of, of him. Of him, yeah. yeah, yeah. But maybe, and we don't know, you know, presumably it, it wasn't, but maybe if you had looked at that, like a week before that episode, like he still would have looked like that, and they just hadn't made the connection. So I, I think it's not it's not really written, at least not implied that way in the episode. But I don't think there's ever been like a definitive Star Trek statement. Like there has a, and I think in reality, I think there are three possibilities that you could consider. That either the one that you guys just described a moment ago, that you can only make changes that would lead to the timeline that we know. Otherwise you can't, it's not possible for you to make, to take that action that would change something or the timeline is always in flux where it's being constantly rewritten and people go back and, and they, uh, they take actions. They do things that have, that change the timeline. You would never know because if you're further down the timeline, you, you wouldn't necessarily know because your history books are going to reflect everything up to that point anyway. And then the third option is the many worlds theory that every time something changes, a new universe is created and it splits off. And so all possible timelines exist somewhere. Which is like the theory of the episode in Next Generation Parallels. Right. Yeah. Where yeah. everybody, yeah. every course of action does happen in a different quantum reality right mm-hmm. yeah or the abrams verse well we're not talking about that right <laughs> yeah let's not get into the abrams verse right now but uh, but but I, I think it's it's an interesting idea and who knows first of all who knows if time travel into the past will ever be possible i mean time travel into the future is possible now if we could simply travel fast enough we could go to the future that's not a problem going to the past i don't know even if we ever have that technology, well, if we have that technology one day, I think it's a given that someone will try to go to the past to observe a past event. So, Someone will go to the past to change things as well. I mean, it's right. inevitable that people yeah. will want to go back and, for example, say somebody, his family was terribly affected by the... Um, the Holocaust, go back and try and mm-hmm. eliminate Adolf Hitler in, in, in mm-hmm. 1910. Right. You know, I mean, there's a reason why this is a science fiction trope, right? Going back and killing Hitler. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's something that's very attractive to people. Uh, the idea of being able to change things for the better. Or even, um, I mean, that's a, a more altruistic version, but being able to change things specifically for them to be better. I mean, this guy went to the future and instead of traveling in the future, decided, oh, I'm going to steal all their stuff and and make a fortune for myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a really selfish version of it. Inevitably, it would be abused either way. I think it would. And Mm -hmm. this is sort of encapsulated in the B story in this episode, actually, because they say we came here to do good and now we've we've made it worse with what they initially tried. 
which is what would happen if you go back in the past to try to change a historical event to, to prevent uh, you know, a terrible event in world history to make history better, you can't know that, that that action would actually make it better. It might prevent the thing that you're trying to erase from history, but it could lead to another atrocity that's just as bad or worse. You don't know. And you could find out that the thing that you go back to erase is the very reason that you exist anyway. Sure, so yeah. if, mm-hmm. if, if, my, if my family was not in concentration camps in the 1940s, I may not exist if I went back and changed that, by the time I got back into the TARDIS or the silver bullet or whatever you do to travel through time, I may get back here and find that I um, never existed. Don't they call it the butterfly effect? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. you find That's that right. you, you, you eliminate yourself before you begin. That being yeah. said, though, it is done multiple times successfully on Voyager, both in uh, Timeless and Endgame, just offhand. Um and I guess depending on how you interpret Year of Hell, some some sort of time travel happens there. Um, but uh, at least it, it does happen sometimes on Star Trek that people change the past and it just gets better. And if you go fast enough, you become a salamander. Yeah, that's really <laughs> inconvenient when that happens. <laughs> but if that happens, do, you should leave yeah. your babies on the planet and ignore them and yeah. never come back. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I kind of like the Terminator idea. Like, you can go back and try and stop things, but it'll just find another way. Okay. The whole Skynet changes every... It still comes into being every time, no matter how you change the past. It's like history is self-healing. Exactly. And and the T-1000 still becomes the governor of California. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we've sort of already gotten into Picard's dilemma here, which is the choice he has to make. I mean, he has to decide what action to take to help the people of Pintara 4. And we talked earlier about him being in the ready room, talking to Rasmus and trying to find out if there's any information that can help him. He's operating under the, not the assumption, but the possibility that this person knows the outcome of this event and can help them. But at the same time, that's not what's really happening. Picard just has to make a decision. So in the end, Picard decides to to go with his own instincts and uh, take action. Yeah. Do do you have any any additional thoughts on Picard's final decisions? So I really love the ready room scene between Picard and. Rasmussen, and I'm, I'm probably in the minority, but I'll just throw it out there. Like, I think it's no, one I of love the best scene. ready I room scenes. I think it's probably the best part of the episode. Yeah, and I think it's one of the best ready room scenes of the whole series, really. Just the, the gravity of that decision and mm-hmm. the uncertainty that Picard has over it. You know, it's, it's a great scene for Patrick Stewart, and, and it just, it really makes you think. And I, I've always found it, I guess I'm just, I'm glad I didn't have to make that decision. Um, this one thing we're not told is like, what is the probability that they really burn off the atmosphere and kill millions of people? That, that does sound awfully risky. And I was thinking like, I guess there were a lot of people. It would have been hard to like evacuate them, but maybe you could have at least evacuated them before trying that. But, uh, I'm glad I was not in Picard's shoes because it was a very difficult decision to make. And I guess Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to really know, like, if there was like a 50% chance of burning off the atmosphere, I would say like, that's probably a really bad idea. 
so it's a little hard to evaluate without knowing what the probabilities were, but uh, it's definitely not a not a good situation to be in. The other thing in that ready room scene, that same moment, uh, is that Berlinghoff, when he says, I'm sorry, Captain, I can't help you, it's left to interpretation. Is that man really sorry that he can't help Picard? Or is he saying, I'm sorry, I can't help you because I'm not really from the future, but I, I need to know. say that I am, but yeah. I don't want, I want to come off like I can't help you. Well, for me, is it's it that the he... latter. I mean, very easily. It's like, yeah. because you can see it all over his face that like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into here? This, this captain is yelling at me and I don't actually know anything because I'm just some guy from New Jersey in the 22nd yeah. century. I thought it was from the Jersey pretty Shore. much a tip yeah. off. Yeah. The the other thing here, I, I also wonder, was it really that big of a gamble for Picard, where Picard is still operating under the idea that this guy could possibly be a historian and he's come here to observe this mission. If this mission turned out terribly and everyone died, would you be so, you know, upbeat and saying you were at Panthera 4, you know, it's like, it's he's, he plays it up the whole time, like this is some great Picard mission in the history books, and he's here to observe just how you did it, you know, just how did you pull it off? So if it turned out that they burned off the atmosphere and killed everyone, then he wouldn't be so excited about, how did you do it? Picard, how did you kill all those people back in the 24th century? It's a matter of debate so that was almost like a tip-off for me too that the, the right decision is to take the action that picard took because it's going to turn out well but he also says but he didn't I'm, actually know exactly he goes <laughs> yeah. uh since i've no, never been one to play it safe i'll just gamble all these right. people lives yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i know he didn't actually know but if you're operating under the idea that well maybe this guy is from the future and he's come to observe this mission because it became a famous mission it would seem to skew it in favor of success. Which is, again, why your presence inevitably changes things. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, if you if you had been legit, that would have been the way he's acting is a tip-off. Right. And they were trying to That's interpret everything yeah. he said mm -hmm. as, what does this mean? Right. And he was using it as misdirection, but if he had been a real historian... That would have influenced Picard's decision. That's why if you're a real historian, you really cannot interact with anyone. You have to be the fly on the wall, as he mentions fly in the episode. But also when he says at the end, he does that captain's log, which, you know, because they're trying to hurry up to get it all done in 43 minutes and 40 seconds or whatever it is. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, well, the council on the planet has met and they've all decided that they're going to risk it. So they've had this decision in record time, that they're going mm -hmm. to risk everybody's life on the planet. Nobody said, hang on a second, can't we get a few galaxy-class starships over here and at least evacuate 50% of the children so our race survives? No, well, I'm sure the Enterprise was the that. only ship in the quadrant, Sebastian. Oh, of, of course. Of course. <laughs> the Enterprise was the only ship in the entire quadrant. I, I, I mean, I'm glad the Romulans wouldn't have been able to help. No. I'm pretty sure the Enterprise is always the only ship in the quadrant. It is, except when it's the only ship in the sector. Did anyone else <laughs> notice how the the uh, staff of the colony they were wearing those like uniforms, which always say to me like these are the uniforms worn by Federation people who like screw up terraforming missions because those are like the early TNG like I think the same ones they used in Home Soil and 
a couple of the other early episodes where they just like mess up their native planet. You just know that they're up to no good. <laughs> well, I knew that um, Rasmussen was up to no good as soon as I saw his outfit. It was like some sort of weird beige, I don't know, <laughs> right. onesie. Although he does say that he got those sweater. clothes from the guy that he killed. So maybe they just have poor fashion taste in the future. Well, from what I can tell, they have poor fashion taste throughout all of the ne- uh, all of the Star Trek future. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I will say these people, they are human. They're not aliens. They are humans. And one of the cities they mentioned is New Seattle. So they may very well be terraforming scientists who screwed everything up. <laughs> yeah. New yeah. Seattle that apparently has tropical rivers. Right, yeah. Yeah, they get their maps mixed up a little bit, you know. So... All right. Well, uh, we have run through pretty much all the key points here, and we're coming up on an hour. So let's go ahead and wrap up with our final thoughts on the episode and our ratings. So, Daniel, what are your final thoughts on this? So, uh, you know, as we've been discussing, I really like this episode. I think it has a good mix of science fiction. That moral dilemma is a good one. Um, and, you know, while it wasn't Robin Williams, Matt Frewer is great. At the same time, it, it for me, is never quite hit that level of greatness. I can't quite put my finger on it, but, uh, you know, maybe maybe Robin Williams would have kicked it up in that upper tier. But I do like it. I think it's a solid TNG outing and one I certainly wouldn't be embarrassed to to show someone as an example of what TNG is. And I do think the performances from the crew are all spot on. And in honor of uh, being from the Garden State, and as far as I know, this being the only Star Trek episode to mention it, I'm going to give this one seven out of ten trips to a place called New Jersey. very good excellent how about you Andy um overall I thought it was a a decent episode but not a great one I do like the science fiction dilemma it's a pretty classic one but also has uh, a bit of uniqueness towards it I did like Matt Frewer as a, a guest star he was one of the the best guest stars I think they've ever had I would also give it a 7 out of 10 great how about you, Sebastian? You know, I think A Matter of Time was a really good Star Trek story. You know, a lot of the really strong Star Trek stories involve a moral question. Everybody knows that. But also, they they do a lot of tricking people. Episodes like Stratagem and stuff like that from Enterprise, where they, they, they go through these elaborate tricks to to get what they need and this time the actual crew of the enterprise are the ones who are tricked for a while so it kind of turns that on its ear i really enjoyed this episode it you know it had all the star trek trimmings it need to have it had some cool uh moments you know where they were all kind of you know you wonder what's going to happen next i would give this episode seven and a half stolen laser scalpels excellent yeah, I like I said up front, I've always enjoyed this episode. It's you know, it's not the best Star Trek episode, but it's a really fun episode. And as you guys have just said, I think that Matt Frewer's performance is really great and really fun to watch. And even though I think I said up front the B story is lame, you know, the B story is is just it's your canned Star Trek planet colony in trouble. But it works well for this episode. And then there is enough of that philosophical quandary here, which I expect in Star Trek. And Patrick Stewart does a great job with 
his conversation there with uh, about uh, history and when he says, maybe I don't give a damn about your past because for me, your past is my future, which was, was intriguing to me. So I'm going to give this episode seven type C asteroids. All right. So Daniel and Andy, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about a matter of time. Before we go, tell everyone where they can find you around the interwebs. Daniel, where can people find you when you're not running around outside Vasquez Rocks singing arena? Yeah, I was going to say, usually I am uh, cavorting around out there. Um, but when I'm uh, not on Cestus 3 or nearby planetoid, um, being being uh, dismally under social media at the moment, uh, you can contact me at uh, danielhandlin at gmail.com about any and all Star Trek topics or other interesting topics. Excellent. Dismally un- under social media. That is a great term. <laughs> Never heard that one before. Very good. And Andy, where can people find you? And tell everyone a little bit about what you're doing with your Twitter account. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as at First Time Trek. Um, and basically what I'm doing is I live tweet Star Trek as I watch it for the first time. So I have finished The Next Generation um, and I'm about halfway through the original series. So I'm still still got a lot to go. Um, and I just go through each episode and kind of give my impressions. So Great. So we just spoiled part of DS9, part oh, no, of Voyager, no, no. part worry. of Enterprise, and First Contact for you today. <laughs> nope. I, I just turned my brain off and let you you talk about it and then, and then turn went your back brain onto it. I don't, on. I don't remember a thing you said. Warning, I find there'll it, be spoilers within. Uh, right. <laughs> I, I find what you're doing fascinating because I started watching Star Trek when I was, I don't know, four or five years old in the 70s and you know, I was in, I was almost out of high school when the next generation rolled around. I've seen every episode of every series over and over and over. So the idea that someone is watching Star Trek, especially TOS and TNG for the very first time in 2014 is really fascinating. You're a very yeah, lucky Yeah, and um, it's actually been pretty popular. I've been very surprised at kind of the reaction I got to it, but I think for a lot of Trek fans, they've seen it so many times and they've gone so in depth in a lot of ways that sometimes it's kind of fun to remember what it was like when you were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that just happened. Right. You know, yeah, uh, exactly. and so it's kind of like being able to watch it for the first time through my eyes, I guess. Um, so it's funny that they um, they had me on the, um, is it Standard Orbit? Standard Orbit, yeah. Which is the original mm-hmm. series one. Mm-hmm. And I had just watched City on the Edge of Forever and it's really funny. They're like, Tell us all about how you felt about yeah, that. Yeah, that's an episode because, that is so yeah. famous that mm-hmm. to hear someone who's watching that for the very first time is not something. And I had watched it day. the day before. Wow. So uh, it was it was just one of those things where it was really exciting for people to kind of see what I saw for that's, the first time. That's and very cool. Kind of a fresh perspective on it. Definitely. Cool. Well, everyone, go check it out. So uh, thanks again, Daniel and Andy, for joining us today. Thanks. You're welcome. You know, I really enjoyed hanging out with uh, Daniel and Andy and talking about Matter of Time. Such a cool Star Trek episode. I know we didn't, everyone didn't like it that much, but, you know, it's a fun one. I think it is a fun one and a cool one. It's, it was always one of my favorites. I was telling uh, Andy on the other side of the room. The other side of the room. That I know the first half 
of all the TNG episodes exceptionally well because I used to watch TNG at bedtime every single night for years. And of course, by the time you get to Act 3, maybe I've fallen asleep, but I know the beginnings really well and A Matter of Time was always one of my favorites to turn on. But A Matter of Time isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network this past week, so here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. And, like, we were so busy, I, we didn't eat, like, all day. <laughs> I had yeah. a Red Bull around 5 o'clock, right before the parsecs. Uh, I could feel my teeth, like, tingling. Yeah, yeah. It was weird. Earl Grey. He was robbing the bocle, as, as they say it in, uh, in Klingon. <laughs> I, that's a Klingon word I just made up, just, just so you know. I think we could tell. The orb. What I also liked, too, was that... Nog said, put that in there too to Jake and let people decide. And that just summed up DS9 for me because DS9 is, you know, we're not going to tell you for sure he's a bad captain, even though obviously I think most people would agree that he was. To the journey! Oh yeah, Balana's reading romantic fanfic. Not everything is fanfic, okay? This yes, could it be is. a legitimate author with a legitimate publisher. <laughs> no, this is Klingon Harlequin. You know it is. Warp 5. The Orions, there's something really complex going on within their society, and there's a long-term struggle where the women have flipped the table on the men. And how does that all play out? And it's something where I wish Enterprise had gone for seven seasons and they could have continued to revisit this and we find out more and more. The Ready Room. You know, people have seen that image. That, that image in particular, just that still of her with the Desilu yeah. logo over it, is really iconic. Mm-hmm. And in fact, what I discovered is it's not a still. It's probably 26 different stills. Commentary, Trek stars. A number of scenes uh, from especially the end of Into Darkness are sort of lifted and adapted from Wrath of Khan to be used in this story. Lifted and Google translated into this version. Literary Treks. We all know Troy gets all the, the men that come on, the, the, the all the envoys, actually. You, you notice that she really likes these bad boy envoy men, you know? <laughs> she does. Continuing mission. How is Spock changing? How is he changed from the moment he met Captain Kirk from the, the, the non-mirror universe? What is his ultimate goal? Axanar, the official podcast. So basically, you've got this souped-up computer with this lens on the front of it. And um, because the resolution has increased so much with these cameras, the amount of data coming out of that camera is enormous. And join us in welcoming aboard Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm really, really glad that you mentioned Parliament Funkadelic. I could not watch this at all without thinking about George Clinton. Yeah, so, and, and uh, just every yeah. time he talks about going to Parliament, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I would, I, who wouldn't want to go? And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can find us everywhere you get your podcasts. We're all over the place. Just search for Trek.fm or the name of the show you want to listen to and you'll find us. Also, be sure to grab the Master Feed. The Master Feed contains every episode of every show we do, as well as some other special audio content that you can't get in the single show feeds. 
And while you're getting your podcasts, please consider leaving a review of The Ready Room and the other shows you listen to. Not only do we love hearing from you and what you think about the shows, your reviews also help other Star Trek fans find the show as they're looking around in the iTunes store. Now, Sebastian, speaking of iTunes and reviews, listeners know that we have been running our reviews promotion over the past few months. That ended a few weeks back, and we can now announce the winners. We pulled together all of the entries, and we had over 150 of them, and we drew winners at random. And I'm happy to say that Christopher Baca won the first prize, the DVD Blu-ray prize. He got Star Trek, the original series, season three on Blu-ray. Also, Michael Blakemore and Robert Womack each won an official Starships collection ship from Japan. Gene Russell and Jake Duke won Star Trek novels. And Eric Butler and Eric Wellsby won a complete set of our original Alien Illustration art badges. Then Greg Rosier won the set of three embroidered Star Trek Axanar patches, which were contributed by Star Trek Axanar and Alec Peters. For everyone else who submitted a review, thank you very, very much for supporting the show and doing that. We're working on a digital item for everyone who entered the promotion. I would like to give something to everyone who took the time to leave us a review. And for those of you who did not review the show during the promotion, I do hope that you'll still drop by iTunes and leave us a review because that really does, as I said a moment ago, help us out. And we'll be running another promotion down the road sometime. I'm not sure when yet or exactly what form that will take, but stay tuned. And again, congratulations to all the winners and thanks so much for your support. Another way you can help us is on Patreon. Just a quick reminder, we talked about it in news, but if you go to patreon.com slash trekafilm, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash trekafilm, you can see all of our goals. You can see the different contribution levels. It's basically like Kickstarter, but it's a way for you to support the creatives you love on a monthly basis instead of just one single project. So go check that out. We appreciate any support that you can give us there. If you'd like to share your thoughts on anything we talked about today, which captain is the best under pressure, what you think about Robin Williams, if he had been in a matter of time, we would love to hear from you. There are many ways you can do that. Go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose the ready room. And that will come to us by email. You can also find us in social media on Twitter. Our username is trek.fm. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash trek.fm. We have a community on G+. And you can even send us a voicemail, which I would love and maybe we can play your voicemail here on the show and to do that you can look in the left sidebar on the show page you'll see the little widget for that or go to speakpipe.com that's the word speak and the word pipe speakpipe.com slash trekafilm and all you need is the microphone on your webcam or your smartphone or your tablet and you can upload that to me right there from the page as an mp3 file so Sebastian when you're not you know out there in the desert practicing for your reenactment of the dune buggy scenes from Star Trek Nemesis. Where can people find you? And also, what else do you have going on right now? Well, uh, I have a couple of things happening right now. We're working on the new episode of Star Trek The Continuing Mission, which, if you don't know, is a full cast audio drama, which I have been working on since 2007. And there's about eight episodes up there right now. We're working on number nine. And uh, that's all at Star Trek Continuing Mission.com. And we have a new show also coming from uh, my network, Melting Clock Productions, which is called Star Trek Shadows of Tyranny. 
which will be coming before the end of 2014 and is a show which is in six parts about Spock's rise to power and defeat of the Terran Emperor all inside the Mirror Universe right following the episode Mirror Mirror of the original series. So we're recasting some really, really iconic roles, being really careful with how we approach it and try to make it really respectful, but put our own stamp on the Mirror Universe. And if you want to find out what I'm doing on a daily basis, you can find me on Twitter at Sebastian Pruth, S-E-B-A-S-T-I-A-N, P-R-O-O-T-H with the at symbol right in front. Go ahead and follow me on there and you can see what I'm up to and uh, hearing all the crazy stuff I get to every day. (laughs) Very good. I have a question. For Shadows of Tyranny, are you all growing goatees for the recording session? Well, it's really funny because in my last show, uh, when I was working on my last TV show, uh, I I was actually wearing a goatee for a couple of months and I walked into work one day and my coworker said, oh, what? No evil Spock anymore. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I was like, oh, that's funny because he doesn't even know I'm a Star Trek fan. Yeah. Everybody knows the the goatee (laughs) is evil. Thanks to Mirror Mirror. Like you don't even need to be a Star Trek fan. Everybody knows this. Well, I know I'll put this out to your listeners as well. We are looking for voice actors for Shadows of Tyranny. So if you have a voice and you have a mic and you have some acting chops, we need everybody. We need kids. We need women, men, old people, everybody. We need voices. And we're looking to fill some very important, iconic roles still right now at the beginning of September. So we need to hear from everybody we can hear from. We're casting this giant net. So if you have something you feel you can contribute, please contact us through shadowsoftyranny.com. If you hit contact us on there, we'll be able to get right back to you and uh, let you know if we like your voice. Awesome. What about animals? Because we have quite a few hosts on the network who have cats that like to come in during recording. So if you need any meow sounds, I think we've got you covered. Yeah, well, either that or we can go to any one of the millions of Foley archives and find many, many cats. But what we cannot find in those Foley archives are great people playing these iconic roles. And we really need your voices for this. Definitely. Excellent. Well, if you'd like to find me, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C. Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. I'm also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Jones. Feel free to send me a friend request and, and hook up with me there. And then I have my own website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, I do a lot of different shows. There's The Orb, Warp 5, Literary Tricks, Matterstream, Continuing Mission, Hyper Channel, and I also co-host the official podcast of Star Trek Axanar with Axanar creator Alec Peters. And we have a lot of great guests on there taking you behind the scenes of that production. So check out all of those shows if you want to find out what else I'm talking about in the world of Star Trek. Lastly, before we let you go, I'd like to remind you about audible.com. You can get a free audiobook of your choice if you go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up. You'll get to keep that audiobook if you decide not to stick with Audible at the end, but I know you're going to love them. If you love podcasts, they're nothing better than audiobooks as a way to read all those books that you've always wanted to read, but you just don't have time for. I know if you're like me, I want to read so much stuff, but it's really hard to sit down and, and carve out that time. That's why I love audiobooks, and I know you'll love them too. So go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up. That really helps us keep the show coming to you every week, and we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. 
Well, Sebastian, I'm going to wander off. You know, I'm looking around here. I cannot find my 3DS, and I think that Rasmussen might have it in his time ship. Well, you know, it's probably time to stick a Klingon dagger in this because the ready room is done. <laughs> <laughs>